This episode is brought to you by Zappos Communications, where our goal is to empower Zaponians to develop a more meaningful and effective voice through communication. The writer Ernest Hemingway had a famous remark about going broke. He said, first, it happens slowly, then quickly. And I've always loved that little saying, not just because it's funny, but because of what it says about change. Because we're always off balance with change. There's always too much or not enough. And sometimes change comes slowly, even too slowly. And then there's other times it happens so suddenly, so completely, that it can take years to come to terms with the consequences of that change. As a young woman, Carmen Daniels Jones experienced that kind of sudden, life-altering change. So in 1986, I was a junior in college in Virginia, and I had this snazzy Hyundai Excel. I remember my payment was $149 a month. And so um, one day during Thanksgiving vacation, I was with some friends. We went on a little road trip about 90 minutes from our apartment, and on our way back, we were in a car accident. And my life changed in an instant. I went from running upstairs two at a time, five foot 10, to being a wheelchair user. Learning to live in a new way had its own challenges, but Carmen also realized quite quickly that her wheelchair changed the way others saw her. And now, decades later, she works to raise awareness about the unconscious biases that many of us have toward people with disabilities. There's so much more vibrancy to my life beyond my wheelchair. And if you just looked at my wheelchair and tried to generalize everything and attach everything about me to my paralysis, you would miss all the other ways that make me unique. Well, greetings, all you slightly weird, intently humble, change-driven, service-oriented standard bearers of Zaponian culture. Adam Francis here with the latest edition of the Zappos podcast. A few weeks ago, Tony talked with us about some of the things that are not so important when exploring a business venture or idea. What is important is learning as much as you can about the customer. So what happens when the customer triggers our own biases? On today's episode, Carmen Daniels-Jones gives us some answers. She talks about her struggles to find employment as a young woman, her successes on the national stage, and how Zappos is doing on the disability awareness front. That's coming up. Stay with us. Who's brave enough to say they have some sort of bias? Can you raise your hand? That's honest. When Carmen Daniels-Jones spoke in the Zappos Council Chambers a few months ago, she encouraged people in the audience to do a little self-reflection. When someone comes in and they speak differently, or they communicate differently, or they look differently than what you're expecting, you can form a bias. I experience it, and I've been in this work for a very long time. There are people that I see who have disabilities who make me somewhat uncomfortable. That's real. Real talk. Can we be real? My daughter says I keep it 100, so I'm going to try to keep it 100. <laughs> so our job is to not project that discomfort onto anyone else. Carmen is president of Solutions Marketing Group, and for the past few years, she's worked as a paid advisor for Zappos Adaptive. In an interview with the podcast, she said many companies who market products to people with disabilities 
are unclear on the most respectful ways to do that. What I've discovered through the years is that when you talk about targeting this segment of consumers, there's so many internal pieces that have to exist within the organization. So for instance, before you can get to messaging and talking about your unique value proposition, you have to make sure that the customer service team has the skills to provide excellent service. You have to make sure your HR and diversity team understand how disability integrates into the diversity equation. And so I really try to take clients through a holistic approach with regards to providing substantive support and senior level buy-in to disability marketing and engagement. So you've been critical of companies that just pay lip service to this issue. Um, What are the differences between the companies that are making a a sincere and substantial effort and those that are just paying lip service to disability awareness? I find that many will check the box. You know, they will do anything to keep the federal government off their tail. And so they'll do the box checking and they'll say, well, yeah, we're diverse. We're inclusive. You know, anybody can come and work here. But they haven't really taken the time to understand the distinctions for an employee or a consumer with disability. And they have not built the infrastructure to support them. So while they may do box checking and they may pay lip service and they have the right words in their EEO statements, when you start to really examine their practices, that's where there's some opportunity for improvement. So you've said that Zappos makes an authentic effort in this space. Um, What are some of the things that this company can do to take its disability awareness to the next level? What I love about Zappos is that you all admit what you do not know. And so many times I've encountered clients who are the subject matter in their service or program or, you know, their their suite of solutions, but they do not have the vocabulary and the tactical plan to really support that with this market. So, you know, you all are on a journey and you're evolving and it's been a beautiful thing to watch because there have not been missteps, but there have been a lot of discussions within the teams about what can we do better while maintaining the authenticity to the brand. How can we be who we are with this consumer segment um, and still be fun and caring without being patronizing or offensive? And so when you take all of that and you mix it all together, um, it's starting to become a really wonderful story that's unfolding. And again, you, you admit what you do and do not know, which has made you a dream client, (laughs) from my view. (laughs) Okay. So for those who are listening who either might be starting from scratch or might be wondering, you know, what they do not know, right? What are some of the common pitfalls when it comes to talking about disability issues and circumstances? So much of the common language that we use is laden with these, uh, these sort of offensive assumptions or offensive meanings. It seems like it's really difficult. It could be really difficult to navigate if you don't know a lot about what's the right term to use. Well, I think it's like anything. When you want to know more, you do a little digging. And so just understanding the context for some of these words and some have some historical origin um, and also understanding what is the messaging or what is the vocabulary that the market is accustomed to. And as I've shared with the team, 
you can always win with people language first. So a person who has a disability, um, a person who's blind, a person who's deaf, you're putting the focus on the person and not the condition. And you're not saying anything negative about them. It's just a dimension of who they are and it doesn't define who they are. Okay, so a person who has diabetes rather than a diabetic. Correct. Okay. The person isn't a diabetic. They have a condition known as diabetes, but they're a person. And just break that down a little further. Why is that an essential shift? You're placing value on a person and their humanity and not their condition. You're not leading with their condition. There's so much more to my life and so much more vibrancy to my life beyond my wheelchair. And if you just looked at my wheelchair and tried to generalize everything and attach everything about me to my paralysis, you would miss all the other ways that make me unique. And so it is, again, a dimension of me, but it's not my whole life. You said today that you yourself struggled with that in your own self-awareness. Talk a little bit about that, if you don't mind, what you struggled with and how you came to realize that your, that, that, that your life as a human being shouldn't be defined by what you are able to do or not do. So when I first became a paraplegic when I was 20, um, so much of my life changed literally in an instant that everything for a good solid year of my life focused around my disability. Um, you know, when I went to the bathroom, could I get into a bathroom? Could I get into buildings? Could I go to the movie? How would I drive? Transportation. Everything was linked to my condition. And so it became pretty all-consuming. Where I wasn't comfortable with were the labels, because in the 80s, when I was became a paraplegic, you know, disability was a negative word. Handicap was probably more the term in vogue. And I did not see myself as any of those things. I just saw myself as Carmen, five foot ten, um, active on campus, friends, you know, sorority life, student government. I had all those other aspects of my life, but all of a sudden they were overtaken by this wheelchair. And so it took a while to really feel confident in who I was as a woman and as a student and as a part of my family to not allow those um, labels to define who I was because I saw how society labeled people with disabilities. And at that time it wasn't positive. And why would you want to become a part of a club you didn't sign up to join? And in becoming a part of that club, if it had a negative connotation at that time, I didn't want anything to do with it. And it's been a real evolution to seeing my peers, you know, encourage and support one another and see really there's nothing different about what I can contribute to society that I'm totally okay and comfortable in my skin. But, you know, that comes with age and that comes with experience and that comes with some successes uh, that you can get there. And what helped you make that transition from feeling the weight of being defined by the one thing, your wheelchair, to reclaiming your wholeness, your personhood? I initially did not have a lot of friends who had disabilities. I I just didn't. I, I tend to stick with my own group of friends. But then when I moved professionally and I began to 
go to different organizations, events, and things like that. And I saw other people who had disabilities just doing these amazing things, not in a um, inspirational way, but in a in having the way the ability to contribute. I began to see have a paradigm shift. Um, I think probably one key marker was when I was at the White House on the day that President Bush, um, 41, signed the Americans with Disabilities Act. And I saw my peers. I had only been disabled maybe three years at that point. But I saw people crying and hugging and excited and relieved and rejoicing that there was a law in place that leveled the field for us. It sounds like one key for you and your growth and development was seeing people with disabilities doing things in a matter-of-fact way. Not Absolutely. as a heroic statement about how a person can overcome obstacles, but just what we do in our ordinary lives, just like anyone else's ordinary life. Absolutely. We're, yeah. We do the same things. We are pilots and parents and teachers and business owners and Athletes, we do the same exact thing that other people do, and and in some cases we just do it a bit differently. People who have disabilities do not have to stop living when they have the onset of a disability. It is especially helpful to have some sort of peer mentor or to know how people do certain things so that you too can mimic that and add that to your bag of tricks in terms of what you want to do as well. So, you know, for example, I've met people who have never who are use wheelchairs and who've never flown anywhere on a fl- on a plane. And just talking to them and sharing with them, well, this is really what happens and this is what happens when you get to the airport gives them a little bit of confidence that they would get from a peer more so than they could get from the airline. And that way, when they got there, they're prepared and it doesn't feel awkward or uncomfortable or unsettling because someone told them how to do it. Mm-hmm. And so that was probably a thing that helped me tremendously with just um, getting adjusted. That's, I guess, the point I want to make. How can any company provide the service or the product so that and understand how the product or service is used by the individual with a disability so that they can thrive mm-hmm. or so that they can have the same seamless experience as their non-disabled peer. That's, you know, that's what I try to do with my clients in a nutshell. Mm-hmm. And it, it seems like you're doing great things with clients and certainly with Zappos. I also wanted to talk about another thing that you had mentioned in council chambers today. You told a story about a guy who worked at the company that was servicing your van, your wheelchair-accessible van. What was that story? What happened? So I drive a van with a lift, and, I, and every once in a while I have to go in to get it serviced. I went to on this particular day to have it serviced, and so you kind of hang out in the lobby area and wait. And I had my laptop open, and the general manager of that um, company stopped by just to chit-chat, And during the course of our conversation, he let me know he was new. So, you know, I didn't think anything of it except for then what he said that followed. Um, Something like, so what happened to you? That was intrusive. He he just blatantly asked, okay, so basically how'd you get in that wheelchair? And then I answered his question at a high level and he's like, well, well, that sucks. And I thought how insensitive it was that this man's company made millions of dollars <laughs> from consumers like myself. And he had no level of sensitivity in terms of interacting with me as a customer. And I wrote 
the parent company to let him know it wasn't okay. <laughs> yeah, you you said he picked the wrong person that day. He picked the wrong person that day to uh, ask that type of question. Yeah, and when you said that in council chambers, I found myself thinking, or maybe he picked the right person that day because you were able to alert the company that it needed to be more sensitive to these issues. But, you know, the people that I was sitting with today in council chambers had a pretty animated discussion following your talk about this story in particular. And we were debating and wondering, was it the tone and mannerism with which he asked the question or was it just the fact that he asked the question at all? Because you're someone who's used to telling your story to strangers. So why wasn't it appropriate for him to ask you about your story? I mean, it wouldn't be appropriate for someone to just go up to someone who's different and ask what happened. It would be like going up to someone black and saying, so what happened to you? I see. That's something they had no control over. That's who they are. So it would not be appropriate to to ask that. You don't. And if someone asked that... They best better have some level of rapport and relationship with someone to be able to go into that space. But this is a stranger who's asking personal questions, and that's not okay. Okay, so part of it is context then. Um, That if someone is going to ask another person about a sensitive topic, it's important to build a rapport, build a relationship and an understanding And at the same time, you get that some people are just curious and coming from a place of interest about you. Well, if they're really trying to understand the issues, that's one thing. If they're trying to be nosy and satisfy their scratch their itch, that's a different thing. So I think, at least in my case, I've had to discern quickly. Is this someone who's nosy or is this someone who sincerely wants to understand? Most Everyone I've encountered at Zappos has been sincerely interested in understanding so that they can help elevate the work of Zappos Adaptive. So I've never felt anyone here was nosy. Um, But I have had, you know, some nosy people along the way. Okay, inspiration porn. I want to talk about inspiration porn. You've touched on this topic in talks and in interviews you've given. Mm -hmm. What is inspiration porn and where do you see it in media these days? So I did not coin that phrase. So I want to give credit to Stella Young, who is who passed away a few years ago. She's an advocate from Australia, I believe, um, who did a TED Talk. And I think the title was I'm Not Your Inspiration. And the phrase really undergirds the notion that people with disabilities are not objects to, of, um, to be inspirational, that the things that we do, the way that we live is not to be perceived as courageous or brave. Um, we're not uh, people who want to have, be, quote, burdens to overcome. We want people to have relationships with us able-bodied people to have relationships with us because they have interest and want to become friendships or colleagues, not because they can make themselves feel better. And so where you see inspiration porn, especially in the movies or in commercials, is that you usually hear it with the cadence of music. It's some dramatic sounding music and slow. And then you'll see someone who, you know, people are like, come on, Johnny, you can do it. Um, And it's just the tone of it is just kind of laced in some form of sorrow or pity or um, patronizing tone. Um, Or you see it in, you know, most likely in social media where there's an individual who's trying to do something, you know, work out, 
um, raise kids, whatever. And, you know, the meme will say, what's your excuse? Or don't feel, you shouldn't feel bad for yourself. Basically communicating that um, you should feel better that you can do more than the person or the perception that you can do more the, than the person with a disability. So inspiration porn can be, can again, elicit hopelessness or sorrow or pity, or the disability is something to be overcome and, a lot of times able-bodied people compare themselves to the disabled person and say, wow, I have nothing to complain about as if their life is so horrible. And where do you think that impulse comes from, the tendency of a person who is able-bodied to compare him or herself with the circumstances of a person with a disability? Is this just insensitivity or something else? I think it's just a lack of knowledge. And I think that because... People do not know how they would react or respond in a similar condition or situation that they see whatever the person is doing is just over the top inspiring. Now, as a person, I want to be inspiring. I want to inspire my teenager. I want to inspire my friends. I want to add value to their lives. I want to inspire other business owners. But I don't want to do it because I have a disability. I want the work that I do to stand on its own or the words that I speak to be laced with wisdom for my teen that she says, you know what, let me think about that differently because of what my mom did me. But I don't want her to do that because she said, oh, my mom has a disability. Oh, maybe I should do it just because of that. I don't want that. I, I, I want to be inspiring. I think anybody does. You know, inspiring as an advocate, inspiring as a business owner, but not an inspiration. I don't want to be the object of inspiration that other people can look at and derive some pleasure and and indirect pleasure in comparing their lives to mine and saying they have it so much better. So you run a business that advises companies on disability issues. Um, If you were able to look down the road could sort of fast forward and see yourself in 20 years having accomplished a number of key objectives. Where do you want to take this? And what would signify success for you as you go forward doing the work you're doing? I appreciate that question. That's a good vision casting question. Um, I would love to employ more people. I would like to have more people on my team. A lot of people I work with now are subcontractors. But um, I recognize that it is a challenge. There's sometimes a challenge for people with disabilities to work. So I want to help bridge that gap. I would love to have a marquee list of brands like Zappos, you know, add 10, 12, 15 to it, um, that do holistic disability inclusion work focused on customer service and customer experience, marketing and employment. Um, And we can look back and see campaigns employment, you know, people working in these companies, senior leaders who become more confident in positioning their company as a strong disability inclusive brand. Um, And I would hopefully want to see or have the ability to influence, um, have an influence in companies globally, you know, beyond just the U.S., but overseas where we can uh, point to the work that's the good work that has been done throughout the United States and take that to other parts of the world as well. What about how we're doing in the U.S. culturally? You've indicated we've made some progress. Um, Where do you think we need to go socially, culturally, that would signal an even more high level of awareness around disability issues? I want to see more people working. When someone works 
they have the ability to support themselves. Hopefully they have access to benefits. They change the trajectory of their life through employment. Um, when people with multiple degrees and limited job experience because employers are wary of hiring them, um, cannot get a fair shake to get through the door and, and have a really solid interview with people who see this as an opportunity with employers and recruiters and hiring managers to see this community or population as an opportunity to diversify the workforce, they continue to be left out. So while I believe we've strongly made some some major progress with, um, you know, physical accessibility, with the laws that support um, leveling the field for people with disabilities, laws don't change people's actions and their behavior. And so I would love to see corporate leaders that put a stake in the ground and say, you know what, we can do better and be very clear in their companies where they can do better with hiring, with customer service, and with also marketing. But I believe my dad started working for IBM in the 19, in 1965, and IBM was very intentional about recruiting African-American people. Let's make a plane. Having those employees inside that company changed what they did with their employment practices. There are not enough empowered people who have disabilities who work in these companies who are changing the narrative within those companies. And, you know, there are business resource groups, and I hope that corporate leaders are relying on them. But in many instances where they, those don't exist or they're not influential, um, you know, there still remains a void. So as I've seen the, tr the arc of my father's career, he's now retired, starting in IBM the year the Civil Rights Act was signed into a law, and that provided an opportunity for this African-American family with you know, my dad was from Georgia from a dirt road. We ascended into the middle class because of that. I want to see that same type of path for someone with a disability, where they can move beyond where they currently are to having access to the middle class and being able to have, go on vacations, uh, educate their children, do the same sort of things as their peers. But employment is one of those vital areas where we have to uh, place increased focus. You've talked about the experience you had fresh out of college trying to get a job. I think you said several dozen applications, only two interviews, and then no job offers, and a lot of inappropriate questions during those two interviews. Fast forwarding a number of years, circa 2019, what stands in the way of that ascension to the working middle class for people with disabilities? Like, what do you feel are the key things? Is it laws or are we talking about corporate hiring practices? I mean, if you look at a company like Zappos that has all but said to me, well, you all said we want to do this right. And you all have been honest to admit what you do not know. Other companies I've encountered are not as honest. And, you know, we worked together yesterday with the team here to just devise some tactics that are easily attainable to move the needle with employment and recruiting. But that started, you know, there, there's a saying that you cannot change what you don't confront. It started with confronting where the gaps were and what you all didn't have in place to what can we do to change that. So I, I feel that with disability, it requires 
corporate leaders and hiring managers and diversity and inclusion and recruiters to have those honest conversations to say, you know what, in order for us to change this and get more candidates in the door, we got to confront where we're missing it. And if we're not going to places where candidates are or we're not advertising on websites or um, job applicant portals where people can look for work, we're not really serious about diversifying this workforce. Companies will say, well, we have a recruitment plan. We have an accessible website. We do go to events where candidates with disabilities are. They check those boxes, but what are the tactics to move beyond that? And in order to be effective, you have to have a tactical plan with action and resources and staffing behind it to move forward. And just to be clear, when when you say tactical plan, you mean what? I mean, you have to literally plan where you are going to go to find candidates, what you're going to do to try to um, do something called employment branding, employee branding, where the community understands that you are an inclusive employer, where you have your senior leaders speak at events or even have, you know, talking points to speak to the disability market, where your recruiters have been trained and your hiring managers have been trained not to put up barriers for employment, but to tear them down. So I want the client that's, you know, like Zappos, that has a yes and philosophy rather than a yes but. I like that candidate, but I don't want to hire the sign language interpreter. You know, they get hired. I I don't want to put those resources there. Instead, I want to see the employer that says, I like that candidate. What do we need to do to make sure that Susan can thrive? Okay, let's just allocate that in our budget. It's a difference. I just want to make sure that there are companies that identify the barriers that exist, they call them out, and they develop a plan to overcome them. Carmen Daniels-Jones is president of Solutions Marketing Group, and she serves on the advisory board for Zappos Adaptive. Carmen Daniels-Jones, thank you so much for taking time for the podcast. Oh, my pleasure. Thank you so much. That's a wrap on today's episode. This podcast would not be possible without help from Angel Sugg, Jean Markell, Jamie Naughton, Krista Foley, Dan Habel, Tyler Williams, Philip So, and Tony Shea. Special thanks this week to Molly Kettle, Dana Zumbo, and Carmen Daniels-Jones. Our theme music was written and produced by Philip So and myself. I'm Adam Francis, and I hope you'll tune in next week for another edition of the Zappos Podcast. This episode is brought to you by Zappos Communications, where we strive to inform, communicate, educate, and entertain both Zapponians and our external partners.